Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performing at our best when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. So I've been waiting a long time for this conversation. It's been really cool. Seth and I have been trading lots of stuff on Twitter over a while and it's great to finally sit down. Our guest this episode to introduce him formally before I just start rambling is Dr. Seth Collings Hawkins. He's an anthropologist, a writer, a physician. He's double boarded in emergency medicine and EMS and specializes in wilderness medical care. He's an associate professor of emergency medicine at Wake Forest University and the founder of the Carolina Wilderness EMS Externship, which is a program we're going to be talking about today. He's also the editor of Wilderness EMS, the primary textbook for formal wilderness medical operations. He serves as a medical director or advisor for numerous organizations, including North Carolina Outward Bound, REI, the National Association for Search and Rescue, the U.S. Forest Service, the National Park Service, multiple wildland fire medical support teams, and much, much more. So if that's not enough to get you excited about this conversation, I don't know what is. Before we formally jump in, a quick plug. There are so many ways to get involved in the Emergency Mind Project community, and we would absolutely love to have you on board. The easiest is to take our free crisis skills test. Go to emergencymind.com and you'll find it in the upper right. All right. All that said, Seth, thank you so much for jumping on and welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to be here. Big fan for a long time. And uh, like you said, our work has intersected so much. I'm excited to get to share some of the ways that those intersections land. You know, I was trying to remember how it was that we started talking, and I think it was something to do with the externship. So maybe that's a maybe that's a worthwhile place to start. Like, jump us in right into that. Like, what is the externship and what is it that you all are doing? Yeah, yeah. I think the dialogue began when I said, we're using your book because it's amazing. <laughs> so the textbook, Emergency Mind, is required reading for our externs. Externs are a, a pun, so they're like interns that have to be outside. So we thought we were very <laughs> clever with that. So this project started formally in 2011, although it began a few years before in its germination for my work doing wilderness EMS. So I live in Burke County in North Carolina, which is about half federal land and state park land, huge resources and huge opportunities for rescue and medical care in the wilderness, including the deepest gorge in the Eastern United States and the largest state park in North Carolina. Uh, and frequently the highest number of searches on the East Coast. So I moved there, started doing this work. I moved in 2003. And by 2009, 10, people are asking me to come shadow, which is a experience that I really despise. And I apologize for people who use a shadowing model. And for some things, it's great. But I passionately think that medical students and resident physicians should not be shadowing. They should be doing and they should be participating and they should be active in what they're involved in. Outward Bound has a great philosophy of crew, not passengers. And I wasn't particularly interested in taking passengers on board to watch what we were doing. I thought, hey, you should be training in this. And even more so, this idea of people coming and working with me was problematic as a shadowing element because most of the work that's done in wilderness EMS and rescue and search and rescue is episodic, ad hoc, unplanned, my fear was people would come, they'd hang out in my house, we'd watch some movies, nothing would happen. <laughs> it's not like going to the emergency department and working a shift, which is critically important for this field of medicine to understand that this is generally not shift work at the physician level. Gotcha. So for people who, you know, obviously there's paramedics on duty and there's certain limited personnel who are assigned to tasks, but in general, this tends to be episodic and triggered by an incident where multiple personnel responding from different places, really old school, 20th century, people getting out of their bed in the middle of the night to go help a climber who's fallen. 
And that's like a perfect definition of a swarm team. Like, I feel like if you ever wanted like a great swarm team, well, we call it parking lot triage, where something happens in a parking lot of a national park or U.S. forest, and you start looking at the stickers on the cars to see who you can pull together to like, oh, you've got a star of life. Like, what's your credential? And they're like, I'm an EMT. Like, that's awesome. So in that sense, it's important to understand that this brand of medical care is not usually driven by shifts or things that are easy to come and observe. So my concept was, why not take a small number of people, train them exquisitely, give them truly an operational patient-centered experience where they would come and live in our county. They would have to be outside of four walls the whole time and get experience education in this version of medical care, which was authentic and which actually involved patients. So another reason that that was meaningful to me was the state motto of North Carolina, which is Esse Quam Videre. So we adopted the state motto as our own motto. That's Latin from Cicero, meaning to be rather than to appear to be. And so many wilderness medicine Mm. trainings were going to a hospital where you would watch PowerPoints on hypothermia. You would have trainings in the emergency department. You'd probably do some shifts in the emergency department. And the thing that was missing was the actual patients and the actual like activities that were happening in a wilderness area. And my belief was that there are a ton of patients out there that desperately need services and we weren't reaching them by training people in the hospital. So to be rather than to appear to be was a little bit of putting medical education on its head and saying, instead of going to the hospital and learning from physicians, how about you come out here and learn from paramedics and learn from swift water rescue technicians and learn from EMTs, which was flattering in their sense because these EMS personnel felt like, oh, the doctors are the ones that tell us what to do. And I was saying, that's actually not the case. Probably doctors in training to come out and learn from you because you're the ones who are actually doing it and you have much more authentic experience to draw from. And then put that student out on a cliff at two in the morning, you know, let them deliver patient care and then see what the real challenges are. And that's when you graduate them saying, you've really inhabited this role and you haven't just talked about it or talked around it, which is important. Like in nowhere else in medicine or any discipline, do we just theoretically talk about things? Like we want our trainees to actually be in there doing it and kind of living the experience. So that experience education component was really critical. So in 2011, it launched as an experiment. We took one student, we had him come here. He was not allowed to be in a building unless there was nothing else going on. He just responded to whatever was happening in an EMS and wilderness setting during that month. It was very successful, I think. And since then, usually we garner the best month of medical school. And it's frankly, it's a low threshold, not you know, to run down medical education, but to build up the fact that you put people out in these amazing areas sure. and you give them amazing experiences. And, you know, I don't have to do too much to make it a wonderful experience. But I think the other thing that we do that is above and beyond just simply putting people out in the woods is build a package of mentorship. So what's maybe different from other sort of medical school rotations or other educational experiences is that I and increasingly the externs who have graduated who now come back to contribute to the program really kind of invest in that month our own life experience. So hmm. again, in a in a credibility and essay quambidary kind of way, there is no that our lives are completely transparent. Like there is no, this is how you act when you're on duty and then you go home and do something else. Like they see my life, you know, completely through all elements of it, including family life, including 
off-duty time, including how do you navigate the on-duty, off-duty sort of interface in this job where like you work a shift in the emergency department and that night your radio goes off, your pager goes off and do you respond or not? Have you been drinking alcohol? Sure. What does your spouse say? And I think that mentorship thing unexpectedly has become very big in it as well mm-hmm. in the sense that, especially medical education, but maybe in other elements of our world, sometimes we've kind of lost an apprenticeship sort of model where people have a deep relationship with singular people who they really see through the entirety of their professional life and they can ask questions and see things modeled and they can challenge things that look you know, inappropriate. So I think that's ended up being a big part of it as well. So interesting, man. And you're right that it's so different than a lot of the medical education that we're seeing, right? The shadowing idea is, is really fascinating. And I think for folks that don't operate in a system that uses shadows, it's worth backtracking for one second to be like, you know, what, what are we even talking about? So th- there's this idea that I don't know if it comes from the thought that medicine is just so different than everything else. We tend to have that thought a lot. I think we're wrong about it, but we tend to have that thought a lot. But medicine is so different than everything else. So it, there's value just in showing up and being a fly on the wall and watching. There is certainly value in showing up and being a fly on the wall and watching, right? Like you can show up, you can watch team dynamics and you'll get a first rate view of what's happening in it. You can watch trauma and try to understand the way the system works together. You can watch the mental models and the things that are being used for it. You can understand, you know, what patient care is really about to a degree. I think it's a necessary and important, but clearly not sufficient way to train anybody to really be a doctor. But it's fascinating what you're saying because there's not a lot of systems within the formal medical education world that operate in the way that you're doing, right? Very few times are you just put on call right at the beginning. Yeah. And I think there's all sorts of ways that wilderness medicine and wilderness EMS is different within the medical world. And then we have been, frankly, trying to disrupt some measures or some steps that the medical education system has begun to implement that, you know, may be familiar in other disciplines as well. So Yeah, the shadowing element, there's a ton that can be gained by watching. And I think there's a lot that can be gained by simulation. My fear about the world as it's starting to evolve is that watching and simulation are becoming acceptable replacements for the real thing when the real thing might be available. And that's my concern is the 16 medical students that walk into an exam room And they're peering over each other's shoulders to look at the rash. You know, like there is an element to which that will be necessary. But in our model, actually putting somebody in the place of doing the skills is irreplaceable. So my personal conviction is that shadowing, observation, unless they have specific purposes where, you know, you're like, it's a great for us. It's a great activity to go out into the waiting room and, you know, see how patients like exist in the waiting room before they see us. And that is its own you know, benefit. That's its own reality. But I think we may overemphasize the importance of things like simulation and observation to the detriment of actually doing the thing. Because then when you step in to do the thing, all sorts of things make sense. You say, oh, now I understand. You, know, you get the tactile memory. You understand why something went this way or, or not that way. And high fidelity simulation gets better and better and closer to it. But I think we always need to remember, A, the you know platonic ideal, the real thing is you doing this for a patient. And then if that's already available, there's no need to try to simulate it. So 
you know, my message in 2011 to the wilderness medicine world was there's a lot of patients out there. There's a lot of emergencies. There's a lot of rescues. We do not need to sit in a hospital in an auditorium talking about this. We should be going out and doing the thing and helping people with it. And then the other part, I think that was really important from a mentorship and understanding the way of the world element was disrupting hierarchies. So the medical world, like many worlds that, you know, are high performance and that, you know, are mission critical, vertical hierarchies could be very entrenched. And we talk about this in the textbook, Wilderness EMS, that, you know, the senior resident is over the junior resident, is over the intern, is over the medical student, is over the shadowing, you know, high schooler. And so to disrupt that, we sometimes ask who is over who, the nurse or the paramedic? And it's like the marital status of the number seven. It's a nonsensical question that yeah. reveals that there is actually no meaning to that hierarchical system in that place. So we proposed a horizontal hierarchy in our training program and really in wilderness EMS in general that argues the most important person for any particular activity is the one who has the most suitability and training for that action. So this is where it's hard sometimes for paramedics and medical students to like figure out where they fit in. Because the paramedic feels like they're supposed to be deferring to the physician. Our message is in that environment, you are supposed to be learning and you're supposed to be deferring to somebody who has more technical skills in that environment. And the reason I bring all this up yeah. is there is a tendency in our culture to think that doctors run things that, you know, oh, if there's a search and a, a you know, the doctor thinks they're going to run things, the team thinks they're going to run things. And, and the important message to get out is like, no, if you don't actually know how to adequately ski, you're not supposed to be the person, you know, going out for the person who's stuck on the ski mountain. It's a ski patroller. And I think that gets lost sometimes in inappropriate deferral to people. And then also this fascination we have with letters after our name. And what really matters is the actual skills. It's a very practical, pragmatic approach to say, you know, get over yourself and listen to the people that actually know what they're doing. So that's so fascinating, right? So let's dive a little bit deeper into that. So can you give us a scenario that might be a typical one where you're doing a rescue like this so that we can explore some of this group dynamic sort of think that's going in there? And where I hope we go with this, although I am not wedded to this idea, just like the number seven, we can move into the space where we're talking about the way that teams self-assemble on an objective and decide in a relatively quick and facile manner the network of leadership and how then that leadership might change depending on what the task at hand is. So important. And that really is that swarm concept. So one example from our own experience, two externs in a car with a high school age, like a senior in high school firefighter going out to a drowning. And they end up at the gate and they're punching in the key that dispatch has given them. And it doesn't get them through the gate to get to that body of water where the drowning is. And the whole time, the firefighter has been saying, I don't think this can be right. That dispatch code that's for the other side of the county. But they were really quiet because they were just the like firefighter high schooler and these fancy pants medical students that were, you know, doing the actual response were the ones, you know, figuring out where they're going to go. And so one, I think, you know, important concept in, in sort of the evolve element of, you know, prepare, perform, recover, evolve is the debrief. And the experience education demands that. And so afterwards we were like, why did you not listen to this kid who obviously lives here and knows this better. And we were asking the firefighter, why don't you just like shake him and say, you're going to the wrong place. But there were these hierarchies and there were these pre-established 
understandings of who was in charge and who you know knew more. And clearly, the person who knew more in that situation was the local person who knew the environment. And I think in you know more of a direct medical care sort of setting. So if you're on a river and you have somebody out in the river, they've gotten their foot entrapped, their airways going underwater. This is critical intervention. Somebody has to get out in the swift water and get the person's airway above water rapidly. And they have a broken ankle that's keeping their head under. And you've got a fellowship trained ankle specialist, orthopedist on the shore or a swift water rescue technician. Who would you send in? Yeah, And that is sort of a laughable kind of scenario. But if you just scale that back a bit, to me, what I would train people in, in this environment for sort of swarm response and really kind of navigating egos, qualifications, you know, what people have done is being very, very, very pragmatic, very oriented towards who's the most likely person to be able to accomplish the task that's, that's at hand and has the most experience around that particular element. And that's just not something that we're very good at because we have all these other preconceptions about what people's qualifications are, what their roles are. I'm not saying it's easy, but I do think in terms of rewiring our understandings of how that should work, it has to be goal-oriented. As physicians or as people who are leaders in other spaces, we're sometimes the ones who are not good at it. Like We step in and feel like we're there to take control. And that's why physicians are often disliked. Uh, Yeah, um, totally. totally. EMS calls. Yeah. So- do you all have a framework or something you use in that moment to sort through who should go? Because it, it's rarely as easy as people showing up with a shirt that says, I'm a fellowship trained ankle specialist. And this guy's got an, uh, you know, you could you could argue which one of them is wearing, you know, Patagonia or REI or something that might give you the, the differentiating factor. But like, they don't usually say what their job is and what their skill set is. And the in-hospital mirror of this situation, by the way, is running a cardiac arrest or a code blue on a floor where you don't know anybody, right? So you show up, maybe you're part of the designated response team and you show up to a room where there's a lot of people and you don't necessarily know who those people are. And there's this moment of like, what are you doing in there? So what do you all do for that? What's the framework about how to decide who a person is? So there's two huge bins that this goes into. One is the regulated practice of medicine and regulated medical operations. So To the extent that there's a rescue, which is being managed by a jurisdictional authority that has the legal responsibility to build the response, and there are people there who represent that, that is very swarmy in the sense that usually in these spaces, there are not enough formal people like, you know, the national, like the US Forest Service would not be deploying frequently rangers in enough numbers to be able to affect a rescue, but they may provide the jurisdictional authority that builds structure around that. So one element, even in a swarm setting, is somebody who has pre-designated a legal apparatus to accomplish this. So in the hospital, oftentimes you figure out who the person is who's pre-designated as that role, and then they start having to figure out all the ancillary support people. So this little incident command structure builds right away when there's a formal pre-designated incident and somebody who is legally responsible for a command. And that's really important for people to appreciate if they're not familiar with wilderness remote operations is this idea of authority having jurisdiction and that there will be ultimately an incident command that will have to be answered to. Then it's not the time to like, if you're like a climber and you know a ton about climbing rescue, you still have to defer legally to the authority that is stepping in there, even if you feel like they're you know not doing the right thing. That advocacy and patient you know uh, role is something that we're familiar with in all environments for trying to appeal to somebody who has that vested authority. 
On the other hand, the other bin, which is equally possible, is truly human beings in a threatening environment assembling and trying to accomplish a goal. And this is like 9-11 airplane. This is climbing fall where somebody falls and there's you know 18 people in the area who all just go running over because the person just fell. Raft flips and somebody's drowning. So in that situation, it doesn't, you know, there's no time for like, you're calling 911, but they're hours away. So then, right, then you really are. And in our, in our programs, if we were in that situation, which hopefully wouldn't be unlikely because we're spending so much time in those environments, we're hoping to bring a lot of that credibility so it can be quickly captured. We're EMS physicians that have particular training in wilderness EMS. We have, you know, wilderness paramedic credentials if we do, and we specialize in this kind of work. That carries a lot of weight for, you know, somebody's probably hopefully pretty thankful to hear that. Language there that's meaningful though is things that are germane to that environment. Because if we then meet somebody and they're like, oh, you know, this is not to throw any profession or medical specialty on the bus, but if they're like, oh, I'm a pathologist and I'm on, you know, the first hike of my life, then hopefully we can kind of negotiate out, you know, the yeah. same as what if we were asking them for an opinion about like a histology slide, like, how about I run the ball on this? And so, although it's frequently criticized, this is where things like credentialing, getting certificates, getting things that are some sort of objective measurement of your qualifications become rapidly helpful as code. So if you can say something like, I'm an EMT, I have swift water rescue training, people know what that is, and then they can translate that into something meaningful. But then it's on us as an industry to ensure essay quam videre style that you can't just get that by phoning up, doing a Zoom call, but you actually, there's some credibility to that training. So then building in, you know, teeth to that. So that brings us back to why I take my students and I put them out there because if physicians get a reputation like, oh, they have wilderness training, but it was in a hotel during a conference and they never stepped foot outside, that will not do well for our industry. Sure. So there's a couple of things that you're getting out of here that are worth sort of poking out a little bit. When we talk about swarming, we typically, at least on this podcast, talk about leading a swarm, right? We talk about coming into a situation and assembling a swarm around that. We less frequently talk about the self-assembly of a swarm, and we even less frequently talk about following in a swarm. And I think those are both really critical skill sets also that maybe we can dovetail into a little bit. There is this real tendency, once you have any sort of training, to try to take command and step forward into it. I will share the embarrassing story of me being like a brand new medical intern at something and responding to an event and pushing somebody out of the way because I'm the ER doctor, you know, newly minted plastic still on my stethoscope and everything, right? Only to find out who I had shoved away was the like 30 or 40 year veteran of the field who I didn't even know enough to know I didn't realize. Like I have some compassion for that younger version of me that didn't know his ass from his elbow from that. But I'm also like, all right, well, probably that should have been a thing we talked about ahead of time as we're going out into the world about this. So there's certainly ways not to do it. But for a moment, like let's ignore that leadership decision about who takes command, right? So let's say that you're in this field, there's somebody in the river, there's a bunch of us floating around, and magically there really does happen to be a exceedingly experienced wilderness paramedic with swift water rescue training who has done all the things and has all of the everything. And they're like, great, I'm in command. What happens to the rest of the team? 
what are slots two through X look like? How do you slot into them? And what's an ideal situation? Maybe also what's not ideal, but what you average see or where are their pitfalls? And how can folks listening to this improve their ability to self-assemble a swarm team on a problem set? Yeah, this is so important. And I love the idea of the slight redirect from leadership to support. And this is such a great case study for that, especially for people like physicians. So showing up an incident where you are actually not the most highly trained person, but you have a ton of skills to bring to bear that are not the leadership role is one of the really big things that I think I'm trying to train the students in here. And they, I think to a person would say they come out being told how humble they have to be. And that I think affect of humility and being willing to be a follower is the positioning that then leads into the best leader being found. Because if you have a collection of people who are not seeking that role, and then you sort of select from this group, nobody is jockeying to take that role unless leadership is actually one of their particular skills. So then I think there's two parts to this answer. Again, this is peculiar to physicians. On the one hand, with us being trained you know, so often to be the person in control, actually training that in your head and being the person who's sort of in the back and supporting and offering medical advice is a really important role. So patient-centered rescue came out of the Pittsburgh shop and is such an important concept that much of the rescue training that goes on in the world uses mannequins. Again, this is the simulation problem. Like I've sat at rescues trainings where there's like a basket being carried up a wall and the mannequin's face is smacking against the wall the entire time. And the crew is high-fiving because their technical rigging system is so sophisticated and they've got a seven to one, you know, it's like technically really cool. The physics behind is great. And I'm like, yeah, but you just like killed your patient. And they're like, oh, oh, the patient. Well, right. Yeah. Well, that'll sort itself out. So being the advocate for the patient in that sense is often a really, really good role and people will defer to that. So if you say, hey, your system is great. This is like very good be aware that this person's been on the ground for five hours and we need to get some wrap for them to prevent hypothermia or, you know, whatever that small input is. It's that kind of like medical contribution or an incident command, you know, system, sort of the medical wing where they're like, oh yeah, it's a real person that we're taking care of. So I think there's real validity to that. And that's the, uh, you know, it's playing bones to Captain Kirk. On the other hand, I'm passionately committed to the idea that physicians do not need to play that role. And there's a real problem in operational medicine that once you achieve a certain level of training, you're seen to be outside of the legitimate realm of first aid and operational medicine. And this is hugely problematic. So it's to the point where many of us have taken to displaying our credentials as MD paramedic, or I'm an MD EMT. And the reason I'm an MD EMT is that kept my EMT certification because it's different from being a doctor. It has different skill sets. It has different scopes. It's not additive. And this is perverse, but sometimes it's more helpful for me in a swarm setting to say, I'm an EMT and they will put me in and they will, you know, I'll be like on the raft, like going out to help somebody. If I say I'm a doctor, they'll say, that's awesome. There's the log that you can sit on and tell us like when we're doing something wrong medically. So I think, you know, fighting this sort of idea that it's the anti-intellectualization of all this that just because you have more advanced training, it doesn't mean you don't have those skills in that. Oh, sure. I've seen lots of instances where this is the case. I think it's important for us to you know, combat that. Well, I think you're right in saying, first off, like 
more advanced skills are not necessarily the right skills for the moment, right? That's just not true. Like I think we, you know, we sort of nailed that with the ankle fellow versus the swift water rescue technician thought. That said, like it's not always obvious how to assemble the rest of the team around that. I love this bones to Kirk metaphor because I'm a total sci-fi nerd and I think that's like critically important to think through, but it's still not super clear to me how the logistics of how that happens. So what are you seeing, right? Are you seeing, okay, we're all in a room. Nobody knows who anybody is. We show our credentials. The swift water technician's like, great, I'm in charge of the rescue. I'm taking you and you and you. You're with me. Everybody else, are you speaking up then? Are you saying, okay, I'm a doc. I'll hold home base. Are you volunteering? Or are you seeing teams that self-assemble in some other way that's not like that? Yeah, no, what you described is exactly it. And I think advocating for the position that you feel you are most efficacious in that setting is the way to go. Really what I'm saying is be careful about the label that you choose because these are very quick operations and you will become the blank. Afterwards, they may be really upset to hear that you have 20 years experience in the military and you are a military medic and you have all these like tactile skills. Their image of a doctor is somebody in a white coat who now doesn't even do anything. They have PAs do everything for them. And I just, earlier today, somebody used that analogy. They're like, well, I'm like the PA, I do all the work. And- you know, I tell somebody who just supervises me, I was like, that's not at all what, yeah. you know, operational positions are. How that works, so, right. Yeah. So being clear about what your capacity is for that. But I think we know that that's intuitively how mm. it goes down. All this is very practical. And if human beings are sort of wanting the best for the operation and assuming everybody's, you know, in good faith trying to make something work, you just won't quickly want somebody to encapsulate what they can contribute. So if this is something, and, and again, this gets very sort of contextual, but this is the sort of thing that medical students need to learn in a rotation. And I would say anybody needs to learn sure. if they're going to work in this environment is if you're not the person on the sharp end of the rope going down, you know, repelling down to take care of the person who's crumpled, what do the other 20 people do? And that's completely valid training you know, in its own. Somebody has to set up a command center. Somebody has to communicate with 911. Somebody has to build the LZ that's going to be constructed. Somebody's going to need to talk to the family and they may be patients. Like, the dude who fell's fiance was belaying him and is, you know, totally distraught. That's a psychological first aid role that can be huge. And if it's a fatality, that's your patient. And, you know, we know that healthcare professionals can be very well trained in doing work like that and can be very experienced with it. So you as the physician might be a great person to be assigned to, I think if we're continuing the Star Trek analogy, this is whoever, I don't even know what her name is, the Dina or, you know, the, the yeah, therapist. Yeah. But there's, we know that there's real harm and that PTSD yeah. and things like that can develop. And I can go on and on and on about, you know, the roles that we can play that are very important. And it may not be, you know, physicians. Like if you have a military background and you're used to, you know, working around helicopters or you're used to working on radios, that may be what you're going to do is you're going to be the comms out to try to get the rescue teams to come in. What I'm really getting at, and I think this is a bit of a rewiring of the emergency mind, it's the humility. Somebody once told me, I love the way they introduced themselves. They said, I'm a third year resident. I have been exquisitely trained in taking tests. And, and I think that there's some truth to that, that like, that's what we train people to do is to be high performing, get A's, take tests. But really in this environment, what we're trying to train people to do is goal oriented. It's mm -hmm. to accomplish a mission. And if your best role in that, if somebody's like, hey, can you hold this IV bag? And you're like, absolutely, I can hold that IV big. And at the same time, if I see something going sideways, I can tell you. And one way this fits into kind of the normal 
activities of an EMS physician, and I think every EMS medical director will tell you this, is that when they show up on scenes, they are not the ones doing the patient care. Sure. Like to a person, I think most EMS medical directors would say, and this is the training we get, I'm going to hang back. I'm going to go spike the IV bag. I'm going to get, you know, the airway bag yeah. that they needed. And I, that way, now that's a little different environment, not swarm. That's an intact team where your role is oversight. So you do want to watch, but also your tendency is to be like, I'm going to get in there and get that airway. And again, that humility and that respect for this paramedic is very well trained to do this. If I go spike the IV bag, I can watch what's happening. So anyway, I think that's a little bit of a rewire to, to the idea of leadership on a swarm team. It's really interesting. I think you see the reflection of that even in the trauma bays that we're working with, right? Because there's this idea. It's funny. We actually we sometimes, um, in a, in a bizarre linkage to this, we sometimes refer to it as like leave no trace emergency medicine, right? Like the idea that you should like leave everything better than you found it. And so you are watching the juniors, and even when they don't exactly, they're not they're not deleting the resuscitation or they're not doing the airway, right? They should be doing something. They should be helping the team. They should be like backing people up and getting things ready for the next thing. And there's all this space in there to move the entire team forward, right? Like when you don't know what else to do, clean the field for everybody else, right? And you're constantly working as a unit in order to make the space better around that. Even that in some ways is like the opposite of shadowing, which is that you should just like hang off and watch. Like you should always be making the field better for everybody else around you. But I'm so fascinated by this self-assembling team idea because I think it's a critical problem set that we see across mission critical teams that we see across the emergency mind workspace in general. As you're listening to this, one thing I want you to note is that we're not offering a prescription here, right? We are not saying do it exactly this way because I don't think that that's actually how that works. I don't think that there's a real structure that you can deploy every time into it. There are some things that we're saying, right? Humility, move the field forward no matter what you're doing, find ways to be helpful no matter your skill set, recognize that your expertise in one area might or might not translate to the problem set you're facing right now and come in with that mindset, that curiosity about it. What else would you put on that list? What other yeah, reusable could, skill would you use for every set of swarming? I've recently become enamored of the, uh, the philosophical school of pragmatism. And I think it has huge utility for what we're doing in this space. I think there's a great example here of our movement away from spinal immobilization. So to create a context around that for listeners, in the past, we might have said, this is a critical action from the first aid level to the practitioner level. You have to hold the head in a certain way. You have to prevent the neck from moving in a certain way if you're concerned somebody has a spinal injury. And across all levels of care, we would reinforce this. And it was a skill. Similar to other skills that we teach people, you have to do this. Like Bad things will happen if you don't. My concern about skills-based operations is that you can lose the eventual endpoint. So for generations, teaching people, like we would have entire practice guidelines around spinal mobilization and studies to see, have we immobilized the neck well enough? And what immobilizes the neck better than other things? And it completely missed the point that what we were actually trying to do was prevent further injury to the spinal cord. And if you took a huge step back, and you said, and used a goal-oriented approach, mm. and you said, what are we trying to do? And the answer was, we don't want this person to be paralyzed because of something that we allowed them to do or we did to them. That's a whole different question. And what right. happened, and this is a little bit of like the opioid story in medicine, is what we happened, what happened is we learned that what we've been doing yeah. for half a century 
actually didn't have anything to do with the goal that we thought we were trying to accomplish. And in fact, it was hurting people. So the other analogy to this would be like compressionally CPR. So we've gotten really good at training people to do compressionally CPR. And they think that's the answer to a cardiac arrest. And they come in and they wave their card and they say, compressionally CPR is the answer for this. And it's a drowning. Mm. And compressionally CPR is you know the wrong answer to that question. And so I think one other thing, and I said this earlier, but maybe these are examples to really drive home the fact that there needs to be a goal-oriented approach rather than a process-oriented approach is as that team is assembling and trying to figure out what the heck is happening and what they're going to do about it, one of the very first things to determine is what is the outcome we actually want from this? Because we're, you know, and it sounds again simple, but at the first aid level, we have a lot of people that we've exquisitely trained to do the wrong thing and disrupting that and saying, no, no, I know that you were trained to say we can't move this patient, but it's an avalanche field. So just remember yeah, yeah, that we need to get them out of the avalanche field, even though I know you've been taught in your first aid class, never touch a patient and they, you know, they will explode if you try to move them, but which is, you know, a joke, but things like immobilizing the C-spine or only doing compression, you know, there have been debates that people have had over drowned patients where the paramedic is trying to do ventilations and the first aiders like, no, that's totally wrong. I just certified last week. So yeah. Disrupting that a little bit is helped by saying, let's just start from the perspective that we want to figure out what we want to accomplish. If you want to have this patient end up walking and not be paralyzed, I can assure you, because I'm a physician and this is what I do, that that goal will be accomplished by doing this arrangement, even though I know that you were trained in first aid to do it another way. And that helps people understand why you might be doing something that disrupts what their perception is. Because Right. The thing, the hard thing about this is when conflicts come up. Sure. The hard thing is when people have disagreements about how something should be done. And I think yeah. the more that we can disrupt dogma and make so I guess what I'm saying is in a first aid level, it's important to make that teaching apparent that we are teaching you a protocol and the like way to do something, because sure. in most situations this will be the most important, but it doesn't have to be dogma or absolute. And that helps to pre-plant you know, a little bit of this is that prepare that's like before the incident, mm -hmm. you know, personnel who are there to understand that if I was going to run a first aid class, I would say like, hey, we all need to recognize this is going to be goal oriented and your first aid is going to be directed around getting the goal that you want to accomplish. Hmm. And how do you, how do you accomplish that when you're on the X, when you're on mission, right? Are you saying to your team, team, our goal is blah, blah, blah. Or is this a direction? Is this a democratic vote where you're like, team, what is our goal? How are you dictating that? And then a second question to that would be actually, how do you dictate that when you're not the one necessarily in charge of that point in the moment? Yeah, that's exactly where I was going is the two bins. So that the authority bin, I have some opinions about that, which are not always received. But in the EMS world, there's a movement to say that what we provide to paramedics and delegated practice personnel are guidelines. And we expect mm -hmm. no protocol can ever encompass everything. We expect them to make good decisions with those guidelines. You know, one thing I would argue for and the X is to actually have protocols and actually have, if it is a delegated role, not to even have that dialogue. So then if you have a position of, of authority, you don't want to be having debates in real time with personnel until you're reading the room, until you're getting to that point where you're saying, what all do you have to contribute? And you're creating a space where people can like offer their opinions, but you're the sole decision maker. 
And I do feel like that's really important because there are times when we could not have accomplished what we needed to do if we were having a review of the literature in real time. Like that's the time we need command and control. So I do think we need to protect that for those delegated practice roles and have lots of room for dialogue and the end result is there's somebody in charge. On the other hand, if you are truly in a space where you're building rapport, not just reading the room as a leader or utilizing the room, I guess is the term that you have for it. In that case, I think that's completely around psychology. It's around building rapport. It's around building credibility. And I do think that, especially when it's on the X in the sense that there's a rapid decision that needs to be made, that's when being assertive about credentials and practical reasons why what you're saying is meaningful do become important. And you know, having the humility to recognize when it's not your lane is important, but also if you're asserting, no, this is what I do and we really should be doing it this way. And the reason is that our goal is to accomplish this. And I can assure you that this gotcha. will get to that goal. If your goal is simply to like check off a box on your first aid training, you will have accomplished that, but that's not what we're here for. We're here to actually get this patient, you know, home to their family. That's an awesome distinction. And that depth of knowledge of understanding the why underneath why you do something and when to map one piece of it versus another piece to the situation in front of you is critically important and also really hard to teach and instill at the same time. Right. And I think we're just scratching the surface of how to do that and still too much in medicine. I think we rely on osmosis to figure that out more than anything else. And if I can bring all this home, that's why we need to be in the field. That's why we need to have training that matches the operational environment, you know, train like you fight. You cannot adequately simulate these very complicated situations. So I hope is in my environment is if I take these students and I just put them out, you know, into the wild, into the wilderness, literally, and these things happen nothing's filtered, nothing's preset. There's no, it is what it is. And I think that authenticity is something that for very specialized roles, not just medicine, but other ones, for some reason, we feel like we are okay to simulate them and not put people out into the actual space. So we've had these scenarios that you're describing. We have had the exact debates over the patient about how sure. something been done. And, and oftentimes it's in the regulated practice of, you know, medicine and the paramedic disagrees with what, you know, you want to do and getting facile with that negotiation is its own, almost sort of like you're saying unteachable. It's a, it's a debrief and evolution step because it's such the learned skill. Yeah. But you're going to run into that, whether or not you're practicing on the side of a mountain or in a hospital or anything else, right? There's always going to be differential, like mental models of how things are working and navigating the web of connections between that to galvanize your team from the top, from the side, from the bottom, it doesn't matter where you're standing in order to attack the problem set the way it needs to be attacked, to lead by influence and nudging. That's so crucial to the practice of emergency medicine in general, wherever you're going to do it. And I would suggest that this space is so useful for that. There's so much complexity in this this practice of rescue, search and rescue and wilderness EMS so many of the things that we're talking about are intensified there because the things that are in small ways present in hospital are in very large ways present in those spaces and authority is diffused. Things are very circumstantial. Elements like rain and cold and dark come in that we don't you know, normally deal with. And then there's all sorts of legal and jurisdictional sort of things. So I do think that like as a testing ground and as a training ground, it's 
ideal. So I do think that, you know, for people that really want to learn these skills, building more of these sort of experiences where people are really training to failure in spaces that promote failure, <laughs> that make it, you know, harder are really useful. Yeah. Seth, this has been absolutely amazing, man. I want to give you a chance as we're wrapping up here to issue a parting challenge to everybody. And while you're thinking about that for a second, I'm going to put out my normal boilerplate disclaimer on the end of this and say that our goal here at the Emergency Mind Project is to develop the skills that we need in order to succeed as individuals, teams, and organizations in times of stress, pressure, and emergency. It's never to deliver medical advice, and neither Seth's comments nor my comments represent anybody other than ourselves. Toss that in as a parting shot. Give you a second to collect your thoughts and think, and then I'll turn it back over to you. What's your challenge? What do you want people to do differently as they're listening to this? Yeah, I build off just what you're saying about art. So I love your goal-directed summations. It's my, <laughs> that's my thing. And our goal here is to develop skills. And I think in an essay quam videre, to be rather than to appear to be model, scrutinize what your credentials are and how those map onto actual skills. So if you want to be doing something or playing a role in a swarm team, or you want to have efficacy in a setting, do you have a card that says that you do something or an alphabet soup certificate that you haven't actually touched somebody in that way or applied that skill for you know 20 years or are you keeping that alive with the with the goal again being efficacy and not appearance that would be my challenge to people would be review what you think you do and what you think you can do and match that up against what would happen if you actually had to apply that skill no matter what it is in any environment in reality, two hours from now, and how well do your credentials map onto your actual skill sets? So cool. Seth, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Where can folks reach you? Where should they, all these people that are listening to this that now want to sign up for your externship, where should they go for it? Where, <laughs> where do you want to direct people to? So the externship is awkward because by definition and intent, our goal, only take two medical students or residents a year. So right on. Sort of exquisitely intensive, but we do take two. So we'd love applications. Everything there lives at hawkventures.com. This is the structure that we have around it. But we do have a program at the end of the externship that's a seminar, which is a one-day training for practitioners, meaning people who provide medical oversight, and then a two-day summit in Pisgah National Forest that's open to anyone. It's completely in the field, no PowerPoint, all hands-on. We're basically living out the things that we're describing. That's always in September. And all that lives at hawkventures.com. I'm in Twitter at hawkvox, H-A-W-K-V-O-X. Also Instagram there and on Facebook. Amazing. Seth, thank you. So great to be on the podcast and really appreciate what you're doing for our industry.